First John, chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. (laughs) And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, these words are amazing. They are profound in their simplicity. And I pray you would write them on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the easiest Greek in the New Testament. If you were a Greek scholar, you would know that. In fact, this is where typically they will start you out when you're studying Greek. You learn the letters, you start to learn a little bit of vocab, and you go straight to 1 John because the reading is so simple. It's called Koine Greek, Common Street Greek. Koine Greek was apparently developed by Alexander the Great for the purpose of going into battle so that nothing would be misunderstood among his warriors. And it's what the the most common of people spoke. And yet, as we read these letters, even as we previously studied the Gospel of John, you know the thought is profound. Simple words, but absolutely profound. Some of the most profound teaching in the Bible is right in this little letter. But the fine art of letter writing has been lost. The quill is dry. The inkwell is empty. Stamps and envelopes are becoming obsolete. We barely even use paper anymore. Today you don't just send a message, you message. The noun has become a verb. Now it's a thing you do. Social media itself even is in a constant state of flux. Don't try to keep up with it because you can't. Each new generation is bringing new ideas and new thoughts. Now our social media is giving way to augmented reality and of course live streaming. And there's an app that you can pick up if you'd like to called House Party, which is a favorite of Generation Z. We're we're at Generation Z, which I find fascinating that we call it that. Generation Z is everyone up to the age of 22 right now. So, millennials, you're on the way out. You're done. You're old fogies. You've joined the rest of us now, as has-beens, okay? Generation Z loves the app called House Party. It's where groups can all get on their phones and they can simultaneously video chat. So you really never need to leave the house at all. We could do church by house party. I don't recommend it, but you could. And with all this electronic communication and messaging and and social media, I sit here holding a book. It has paper in it with writing on it. It's leather bound, although it doesn't have to be. It could be fabric bound or paper bound, but it's called a book. And we're living in a time where letters and books and these tangible things are, well, they're passé. It amazes me week in, week out that people show up to listen to someone read from a book. Is it archaic? Is it old school? I think, I think it's wonderful. I love that we are still drawn to this word. I mean, can you imagine Genesis by tweet? How would that even work? The Psalms by Snapchat or, or, or the Gospels by Instagram? To try and get across the message God chose to write us love letters. Page after page of of letters in in accounts and songs and histories and, and revelations and prophecies so that we could come to know Him and get to know Him and draw near to Him. He invites us to gather together in person, not via house party or by video chat, but to be face to face because He wants to be face to face. Because God is a personal God. That's the thing about social media today. And I know I've talked a lot about it over the last couple of years. But the thing about social media is it gets between people. 
It's a, a, a vessel that you have to go through to get to someone, which is less personal than what we're doing right now. Less personal than just getting face to face. Than doing what, what John said. What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands. You can't do that by social media. It's personal. God is personal. Jesus said in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. But then He goes on to say, And you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Well, this morning we open three letters. These three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They will go by so fast. 1st John, just five chapters. 2nd John, 3rd John, not even a full chapter. A few paragraphs in 2nd John. Almost just one paragraph in 3rd John, John, and it will be over like that. And yet, I encourage you, while we're in these three letters, and it will be through this month, read them. Just read over them. Continue to read. Just go 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and start over. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And just keep reading them as your devotional time while we're studying them. And see what what truths the Lord will pour out. But, But more than the truths, watch how close you get to Jesus. Because that's John's intention from the very beginning. All three letters, by the way, were penned by the Apostle John. And I'm saying that authoritatively. I know it's been questioned. But I am absolutely convinced of this, that John wrote and sent out all three letters. He wrote these three letters to a person, and then to a parish, and then to a people. A person, a parish, and a people. First, uh, to a person, that's 3 John. 3 John verse 1 says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And so, 3 John is a letter to a person, to Gaius. We'll find out more about that in in the brief study we'll be able to do in 3 John. But a letter to a person who he says, I love in truth. You know it is impossible to love in falsehood? Can't do it. You can lust in falsehood, but you cannot love in anything but truth. True love is always in truth. And so he writes to Gaius that way, a letter to a person. He also writes a letter to a parish. That would be Second John. Where he says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. So he says, whom I love in truth a second time there. But Second John is to a parish. The chosen lady and her children. It is a beautiful way of referring to a local church fellowship. A group perhaps gathered, maybe in the home of of an upstanding Christian woman, possibly, but most think, no, he's just referring to a church in a local area because, well, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the chosen lady. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The church, the chosen lady. So he writes to a person, Gaius. He writes to a parish, the chosen lady and her children. And then in 1 John, in 1 John he writes to a people. This is a broader letter. Again, listen to the intro. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then John pauses. And by the way, this continues to be one sentence. He pauses and thinks, the word of life. (laughs) The life was manifested. We've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And then he goes back to the opening thinking, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a letter, but it certainly doesn't open up that way, does it? He doesn't say, greetings to the believers in Asia Minor. Greetings to all you who are in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you all, as Paul would say, or or Peter would write. No, this one, he he just launches into it. And what you get in these opening verses, you get John reflecting. You know, it's as though he's he's looking back, thinking about his days spent with Jesus there in the Galilee. 
among the hills of Judea, going up to Jerusalem, on Mount Hermon, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was with Jesus and thinking about Jesus. And John writes, and this is one of the reasons I'm convinced it is actually John the Apostle, he writes as an eyewitness. Nobody could write what John writes here unless it was John. Has to be John. The things he describes, what he saw, what he heard, what he touched. His eyewitness account, that's what's in this letter. John, who realized that when Jesus spoke, he was hearing God. He realized when he looked at Jesus, he was looking at God. John, who understood that when he touched Jesus, he was touching very God. It's remarkable. This eyewitness and what he realized. And it may have taken him some time. We're told that at the resurrection of Jesus that he saw and believed. He looked into the empty tomb there. He saw just the linens. That Jesus wasn't there. And we're told in John 20, he saw and believed. Did he recognize in that moment Jesus as God? He believed Did he recognize during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was God? I I think he did at times. I think he he did, and then he wondered, and then he did, and then he wondered. But here we are some 60 years later. He knows. He knows of whom he writes. And he emphasizes in in this word of life, In fact, he calls Jesus the word of life there in verse 1. He calls him the eternal life in verse 2. And he says that that we can actually, knowing this, this word of life, we can actually have fellowship with him and with each other because of him. And that is huge. And I'll explain why in a minute. But the letter launches, as I said, it launches into teaching. It's not like a, hello, how you doing, greet so-and-so. It just goes gangbusters into what was from the beginning. In fact, doesn't it read an awful lot like the Gospel of John? Which begins, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Listen, God sent these letters to us to be comprehended. Not the letters, but God Himself. To be comprehended. He wrote these letters from Genesis to Revelation that He would be known to us and understood by us. That that life and fellowship and eternity in, through, and by Jesus could be known by all people. All people. That's why the letters have come to us. In John chapter 1 verse 14, he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Letters that we might comprehend God. Love letters from the Father. Now, we don't know the order of these three letters. I know they're written or or presented as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We don't know if that's how they went out. In fact, a really good case can be made for 2nd and 3rd John going out first. As John is formulating his thinking and deciding what he wants to write and realizing what he's beginning to say to Gaius and then to the chosen lady, he really needs to say to all the churches. And so then he writes what we see as 1 John. Now, I don't know, and it really doesn't matter which one came first. All three appear to have been sent off in quick succession, probably in the early 90s A.D., either just before or just after John wrote Revelation. These are late letters in the first century. But of the three letters, this one, 1 John, as we call it, was meant to circulate. 
This was meant to go out. In fact, there are those who think possibly the letter was sent along that Roman postal route in Asia Minor, beginning in Ephesus and going to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Sound familiar? The seven churches of the Revelation. That John had influence, especially among those seven. And that after his exile on the island of Patmos, and we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation, that he came back and resided in Ephesus. Tradition tells us that he did. And that he made his way among these seven churches. And he would go visiting on Sundays, church to church to church. And they would call upon the elder statesman, the Apostle John. John, John's here. John, do you have a word for us? And he would shuffle up to the front of the church and he would say, over and over and over Little children, I say to you, love one another. And then he'd sit down. That's it? That's all we get? From John the Apostle? I mean, that's, that's like the wife who, who says to her husband, you were out on the golf course with your friends for 18 holes and all you can tell me is that their lives are fine? <laughs> what did you talk about? <laughs> You spent three years with Jesus and all you can tell us is love one another? That's the message. That's the heart of the Gospel. That is the heart of the Lord. Ultimately, this letter was meant not only to circulate among seven churches, but among all the churches. In fact, as many churches as would receive it, will we. Because the Bridge Christian Fellowship is along that postal route. We are included in the desire of God for us to know and understand this letter. Now you might say, and we'll do this by way of introduction, you read this and you might say, if John wrote these letters, as you claim, Pastor, then why doesn't he name himself? Why doesn't he say, I, John? James does that, Yaakov does that, Jude will do that, Peter does, Paul does. But Johannan comes along... John, he never names himself. And in fact, in 2nd and 3rd John, he refers to himself as the elder. What's up with that? The elder. How do we even know that this is John the Apostle? Modern scholars debate this fiercely. The, the, The higher critics of today don't believe it was John at all. Their reasoning, and I have read through much of this over the last few weeks, is really shoddy. How do we know? Well, let me give you just a couple of things, and I could give you far more, but I don't want to waste a lot of time on this. The connection of these to John goes way back. In fact, I think the best way to find out is go back as far as you can to those who maybe knew John or were contemporaries of John. What did they say? What did they think? What did they believe? I don't care what the modern scholars think. I want to know what did the church fathers think? And when I say church fathers, I mean those who were leading in the churches in the first century and on into the second century. I'm talking about from like 60 A.D. or actually 30, 32, 33 A.D. all the way up into 150, 180 A.D. The first 100 years or so, 150 years of the church, what did they think? What did they say? you got to go back. Because there was a man who was a pupil of John. A disciple of John. He knew John. He studied at the feet of John. He was discipled by John. His name was Papias. Papias. And this is what Papias wrote, which we have by fragments. If anyone came who had followed the presbyters, the elders, I inquired into the words of the presbyters what Andrew or Philip or Peter, or Thomas, or James, or John, or Matthew, or any of the other of the Lord's disciples had said. Now, I know you don't have that right in front of your faces to look at, but but listen to what he just said. He says, if anyone comes to me saying that they bring a word in the tradition of the presbyters, I look at the words of the presbyters to compare what they're saying against what was taught. Who are the presbyters? He names the apostles. Papias lists these apostles, John among them, and says, I look at their words, and if you come to me and say, hey, I belong to Christianity, and I'm among these people, and and I've got a word. Great, I'm going to compare it to the apostles' teaching. That's what Papias said. 
But then he goes on and he says, and, and I compare it to what Aristion and the presbyter John, the Lord's disciples, were saying. What exactly does that mean? Some people say, well, he mentions John among the apostles, among those who had said things, and then he mentions the elder John among those who were saying things. So there must be two Johns. No, no. John had said things among the apostles, and John was saying things because John was alive at the time of Papias. And Papias says, I just compare things based on what John says and what the apostles said. And that's how I verify if someone is coming with the teaching that is in line with the Scriptures. Now, not to get too technical, but first and early second century church fathers, such as Papias himself, who knew John again personally, and Polycarp, who was a disciple of Papias, And then Irenaeus, you've heard me mention Irenaeus before. Early, early 2nd century, like 120 to 180 right in there. Uh, Tertullian, another one who was the late 2nd century, 180 or so. All of these claimed and quoted the Apostle John as author of these letters. That's good enough for me. Now again, there's more evidence and more that underlies this, but the earliest of the early church looked at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and said authentic, and said these were written by John the Apostle. Hmm. You want to know what the best witness is to this letter? Or any of these? You can't get three verses in without recognizing the Spirit of God. Now, this is John writing. Read, as we already did, 1 John verses 1 to 3 in chapter 1, and then read the Gospel of John, the opening, and tell me, does this sound like the same person? Sure does in the Greek, it sure does in the English, but the Spirit, the Spirit. What we're going to see and learn and understand in this letter, this is the stuff of the Spirit of God, and it runs completely consistent with the New Testament Scriptures. So John's writing this letter. Spirit of the Lord using the eyewitness testimony of John the Apostle, who again I say, alone could write these letters. He's John the Apostle. John the Elder. And John the Revelator. The one who along with his brother Yaakov, James, was nicknamed Boanerges. Do you remember that? It's out of Mark chapter 3 verse 17. He was called Boanerges. What's that mean? Sons of thunder. Because James and John wanted to call down fire and wipe out an entire village that wouldn't receive Jesus. There's your apostle of love. It's marvelous because John came a long way from Boanerges to a man who would not even name himself except to call himself in his gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember, you don't have to convince God to love you. He just does. And the apostle whom Jesus loved. You see, for John, it all comes down to two basic things to understand. The Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. If you get those two concepts, then John has done his job. The Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. You're going to hear the word love in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, why we're calling this series Love Letters. You're going to hear the word 53 times across 33 verses in these short little letters. 53 times. You know, it's interesting, having just finished with the letters of Peter, before I went on vacation, I, I was doing some comparison just in my thinking between Peter and John. I mean, Peter, James, and John were the inside three. They were the inner circle of Jesus in the ministry days. They were the three among the twelve who were closest with Jesus. And many of us believe John was the closest, the best friend, the one on the inside of the inside. But Peter, James, and John, you look at at Peter and John, note the difference. It's interesting just in their ministries and in how they were called by Jesus. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And, And this verse isn't up there, but you might want to jot it down. Matthew 4, 18. It says, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, 
who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So there's Peter for you, casting his net. And Jesus, of course, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. A little further on, John 4.21 says, Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. That's so interesting to me. Because Peter, man, the next time we see Peter after, after Jesus, after the resurrection, after the ascension, we see Jesus, we see Peter standing up in Jerusalem preaching that amazing sermon and casting a net that culminated in 3,000 souls saved that day. Talk about casting a net. Talk about being a fisher of men. What about John? Here we see John proclaiming love, mending nets. Going about his ministry here at the end of his life, and John is an old man at the time of this writing, perhaps in his 90s, maybe even a hundred or more years old. And his primary focus wherever he went is the love of God. Mending nets. Now, he gives several reasons for writing the letters, and this is what I want to get, that's kind of all intro for you, but what I want to get into now is why did John write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? He gives four reasons, five really, but he, he specifically names four reasons for writing this letter. There's a fifth that I will get to. Five of them all together. You know, now that it's August... Christmas is just around the corner. So you might want to start preparing. Get ready, because it's almost here. And I was thinking about these five reasons, and Cheryl said this yesterday, it was so funny, I just had to add it into my notes. If you've ever seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, which we watch religiously in my home every year, Linus at one point asks his sister Lucy to tell him why he has to memorize his lines for the school Christmas pageant. You remember this? Lucy says, I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. And Linus goes, those are good reasons. And he says, Christmas is not just getting too commercial, it's getting too dangerous. Five good reasons. I'll tell you what, there are five reasons for being in this letter that pack a punch. Five reasons to know. Five reasons to meditate on and read over these words again and again for the next few weeks as we go through them together. Reason number one is verse four, where John specifically says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Is yours? Is your joy complete? Can can you say at this point in your life, regardless of all circumstance, that you are just full of joy? That may even sound ridiculous to some. Sitting here this morning going, full of joy? Are you kidding? I barely got here today. What are you talking about? Full of joy. John says, we wrote this so our joy may be complete. That is at the heart of all the love letters of God. The development the birthing, if you will, the nurturing of joy. And we're not talking about frivolity, not talking about giddiness, I'm not even talking about happiness as the world knows it. In fact, where where joy is concerned, we live in a world that is trying desperately to suppress fear and depression and anxiety with the momentary distractions of entertainment and intoxication And physical indulgence, happiness. Are you happy today? Well, we'll see how the day goes. See, that's that's empty happiness. That's not joy. You don't come out of a movie and say, wow, I feel joyful. You know, you don't come out of an evening with friends and go, I'm just just joyful now. Finally, after the day I had, I ended up joyful because I got to do... No, no, no. You might be happy. You might have your mood lifted. But joy is far deeper than that. You can be in tears and be full of joy. You can know sorrow and in the same moment be full of joy. 
What are you talking about, Rick? Look at verse 5. I have never seen this before. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Well, I always assumed that light meant righteous. Perfect. In fact, I have preached it that way. God is light. Therefore, God is perfect. He's absolute holiness. There is no sin, no darkness, no unrighteousness in Him. He's just perfect righteousness. And that's true. But the context indicates perhaps something else. In Him there is no darkness. No despair. There's no depression with God. There's no anxiety with God. There's no fear or worry. You're not distraught when you're in the Father because in Him is light. There is no darkness. All these things that that are pictures of darkness in our world. Listen, to, to be with Jesus denies depression. Uh, It alleviates anxiety. If you're having an anxious time, the best thing you can do is get into the presence of the Lord. Pause and talk to Jesus. You depressed? Where is Jesus in this? Now, please hear me, because we live in a society where chronic depression and anxiety and all these other things are pervasive. I know that. And I know there are people who will show up at church, perhaps here this morning, and maybe it's even you, and you're feeling like, man, I I am struggling with depression in my life. I'm on medication for depression in my life. And I would tell you lovingly, you need more time with Jesus. Because in Him is light, and there is no darkness. What does that mean? Joy. It means there is joy in the Lord. Man, to be loved by God finishes fear. Undoes depression or undoes depression. 1 John 4.18 He'll say there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. By the way, God is love. And John will tell us that too. And Jesus said in John 15.11 These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's fullness of joy. He said in John 16.24, and apparently the apostle was listening because Jesus said, until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17.13, Jesus prayed, listen, Jesus prayed, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We write these things so that our joy may be made complete or full. Fullness of joy. Second reason for these letters. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This letter will aid you in this. That is, secondly, if you want to jot this down, fullness of joy was first. Secondly, we can become formidable foes of sin. Formidable. Are you? Have you ever thought about it this way? As opposed to, sin is just dogging me. As opposed to, well, I try to avoid sin. Have you ever thought of yourself as a foe of sin? As a fighter against sin? As someone who truly, by the power of the Spirit of God, is formidable where sin is concerned. Sounds a little arrogant, Rick. I'm not talking about religious arrogance. John is going to draw for us, and we'll spend more time understanding this, but he will draw for us an indelible line between those who practice sin and those who practice righteousness. And it's two kinds of people. And oftentimes both are in the church. Look at 1 John 3, verse 7. He says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because 
His seed abides in Him and He cannot sin because He's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now that may convict you to the core. Maybe you hear that and you think, this past week has not been a week of practicing righteousness. In fact, I could probably align myself with those who practice sin. And you hear that and you think, I'm done. Convicted out. God will never let me in after this. Remember, you don't have to convince God to love you. He already does. So what is this point about practicing sin and practicing righteousness? It doesn't say those who are sinless. It says those who practice righteousness. Are you practicing righteousness? Is that what you pursue in your life? When you discover that something on your life path that you are in the habit of doing is sin, that is rebellion to the Father, it's against His will, when you discover that, do you say, oh, and change direction? Or do you just plow on ahead thinking, I can't help it, I'm just a victim to sin? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but oh well. We write these things, John says, so you will be a formidable foe. So you can fight against it. He says specifically, so that you may not sin. Which brings me to the third reason for this letter. And we'll talk more about this practicing sin versus practicing righteousness. But the third reason for this letter, look at John, 1 John 2.26. Where again he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's a problem going on in the churches on this route. In the churches that John is connected to, there is a deceit that is taking place that John is writing to deal with and to confront. There's a lot of speculation about the deceit. A lot of people say, oh, it was Gnosticism. Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, the knowing, the knowledge. And Gnosticism was a huge heresy that grew up in the church in the second century after the writing of this. So it's possible there may be some pre-Gnostic heresies going on. There might be kind of maybe the birthing of the, or the start of Gnosticism, but it's not full-blown Gnosticism because that didn't come in until after the writing of this letter into the second century. Some say, well, it was dualism, which we know from these letters was already going on. Dualism, that is separating out the flesh and the spirit. Saying the spirit is holy and the flesh is not. Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? The Spirit is, is righteous. The flesh is, is sinful. Yeah, but this, this teaching said, so whatever I do in the flesh has no bearing on the Spirit. So my Spirit is holy. My flesh can sin all at once because it's just going to be sinful anyway. So I can go to the brothels and I can go to the bars and I can go do whatever I want to do in the flesh as long as in the Spirit I'm following the Lord. And this was dualism and it was dangerous and it did arise in the first century. So perhaps there's some of that going on. We don't know. Others write about cessationists. Not, not those who, who ceased from the Holy Spirit, but, but secessionists. That is, those who were seceding from the church. And it's apparent in First John that there was a group of people who had pulled back from the local fellowships and were trying to teach a different doctrine and trying to gather a different following in their own right. We don't really know exactly what the heresy was. Why? Because John's focused on the truth. He's concerned with the truth. And he teaches the truth. And so here's my main question regarding this deceit. We've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Are you fluent in truth? That's number three. Number one, are you full of joy? Uh, Number two, what was number? Are you a formidable foe of sin? Number three, are you fluent in truth? Fluent in truth. We spent the last two weeks of our vacation with Valentine and her family. Valentine was our exchange student, is, she's still alive, our exchange student from uh, a couple of years back. And we've kept in touch with her, and she was just like a member of the family. I mean, we got along so well with her, just, just adore her. And so she came back, and her whole, whole family came. So this was our vacation this year with Valentine, with the Fontaine family from Belgium. So Valentine speaks English and Dutch and French. 
Her father speaks English and Dutch and French. I'm having trouble with English. Her mother speaks French and her brother speaks French. So we had no idea how was this going to go. What was the, how are we going to communicate? What's this going to be like? Is this going to be a lot of work? It was a blast. We absolutely had the greatest time in the world. Went up to Victoria with them and we're walking the streets of Victoria. And, and it was really cool because when they would talk as a family, they would talk French. And I would walk with them so people would think I was French. You know. <laughs> I understand the language. I had four years of French. And I remember nothing. I can say je suis très bête which means I am dumb I don't remember in fact the whole time they were with us I feared that my parlez-vous was poorly viewed I'm not fluent I can hardly speak the language I hope it's not that way with you in truth are you fluent in truth Do you, do I, do we know what the Scriptures teach on any given subject or issue? Do we? This is a tough question for all of us. I've spent the last 15 years as we have gone through the Bible carefully and meticulously asking this question. What does the Scripture teach on this issue? And as the issues arise in the Bible, and they have all the issues of morality, the values, the core values even of our culture, challenged sometimes by the very words of God. And asking the question, can I, if someone comes up to me and says, well, what do you think about this moral issue? Am I fluent in truth? Can I say, well, you know, uh, actually, the Lord speaks of that in Luke chapter 4. Let's go there and look at that. A lot of us as Christians have lived defeatist Christian lives. Not formidable foes of sin and not fluent in the truth. You know why we're not formidable foes of sin? Because we're not fluent in the truth. The more fluent you are in the truth of the Word of God, the more formidable you are against sin. Because you know what's right. And you can stand on what's true. Specifically on His Son, Jesus Christ. God, listen, God has given us His Word so that we would be fluent in truth. John has to write so that the early churches would not be deceived. There is no reason that the church in this age should be deceived. We have the Spirit of God and we have the Word of God. How in the world can we be misled? And yet we are. Why? Not fluent in truth. He's given us these love letters that we might be fluent in the truth. Are you in the Bible? I mean, you're here this morning. Praise God. Are you showing up Wednesday night? Are you digesting the words of God? Are you studying on your own? Maybe you can't be here Wednesday. That's fine. Study on your own. Are you in the Word? Are you in a small group pursuing and studying the Word? We are called, we are invited by God to be fluent in His truth. And He goes further than just sending us love letters. He writes His truth on our hearts and in our minds. In fact, go on to verse 27 of chapter 2. After saying these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, He says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Remember what Papias said? If anyone came who had followed the presbyters, I inquired into the words of the presbyters. I was sure to double check. I looked into the Scriptures. Or as John will write in his second letter, note this, it's interesting, Second John verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. So do I slam the door in the face of the Mormon? Do I quote this quickly when the Jehovah's Witness comes to my door? Sorry, I can't give you a greeting. Second John 10. What do we do with this verse? We'll talk about that when we get to 2 John. 
my friends, I'm just saying, and I know I get on a high horse about this, but I am preaching to myself. We have got to be fluent in this teaching. Every one of us. Fluent in the love letters of God. And get this, get this, as we're fluent in the teaching, we also have the anointing. What is the anointing? It's not a spiritual energy drink. You know, the anointing is not an electrical charge or pixie dust. You have the anointing. What's the anointing? His Spirit is the anointing. Whose Spirit? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Himself. This is mind-boggling. He anoints us with Himself so that we would not be deceived. Do you see how that, that anointing, how that impacts our fluency in the truth? John 8.31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who have believed in Him, if you continue in My Word, you're truly disciples of Mine, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Well, there's so much more to say about this, and we're going to get there, but we've got to keep moving. So he writes that we must be full, or that we may be full of joy. He writes that we may be formidable foes of sin. He writes that we may be fluent in the truth. And finally, number four, that we would be firm in the knowledge of eternal life. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. It's the fourth time now... John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I wonder that we should even entertain discussions about whether or not we're saved in the church. We know. These things were written that we might... No. Are you, question number four, are you firm in the knowledge of eternal life? Are you? Is there any shakiness whatsoever as to your eternal security in Jesus Christ? That if you were to die before this teaching is done, would you go home? Would you be with Jesus? Are you sure? Well, I I hope. No, no, no. I think, no! Well, I'm, you know, I swear I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. No! Are you sure that you are saved? This word was given to us that we would be sure. Not walking around, wallowing in our uncertainty. Our shakiness. You know where the the shakiness, I've said this over and over and over, I will say it again. The shakiness of salvation comes down to one thing, and that is when our eyes are on ourselves. If I am looking at me, I'm shaky. I'm uncertain. I'm not confident. If I'm asking, do I love God enough? Then of course I'm going to question my salvation. But if I say, wait, He loves me. Oh, how He loves me. Why do I even give it a second thought? Of course I am eternally saved by faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God that comes through faith. Anything else is paper-thin confidence. Confidence in yourself. Confidence in your religion. Confidence in your goodness. Remember what John wrote at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And He's talking eternal life. Are you firm in the knowledge of eternal life? It's not life in your name. It's life in His. And that's where John's going. In fact, he's going to end up at the end of this first letter. Verse 20 of chapter 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. What is Jesus Christ? Jesus is true God and eternal life. You know that He loves you. You know you have eternal life. You trust Him. Eyes on Him. 
you are firm in the knowledge of eternal life. Back to chapter 1. Again, listen. What we have, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The message is the man. The letter is the Lord. The Word is Jesus Himself. He is the eternal life. So that the firmness of the knowledge of eternal life that is in me rests solely on Him. As Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, He is the foundation, and there is no other. We stand on Jesus. So if you're feeling shaky this morning or uncertain, trust Him. Talk to Him. Look to Jesus. Now I said there were five reasons for these letters, didn't I? John marks out four. We write these things to you so that, he says four times, and we've just looked at all four of those. But there are truly five reasons, and I also said that I would explain something to you that is hugely significant. So pay attention. We've talked about social media a lot over the, over the course of several years now since it's really become a thing in our culture. We've talked about the impact of social media on, on our society, on relationships, how it affects us. And I mentioned earlier that app House Party in which several friends can video chat together all at the same time. Listen, there is one thing, and I realize this, that social media reveals in all of us. And it is our deep, abiding longing for reason number five in these letters. Fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship is so much more than what we think. Look at verse 3 again. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have... So that... So that... You too may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is massively important. The word fellowship, you know, if you've been to church at all, you know this word. Anyone want to take a stab at it in the Greek? Koinonia. Koinonia. If you weren't sure about that, you may have heard it at some point. Fellowship is koinonia. In fact, the the language that John writes here is called koinos. It's the common street Greek. So koinos means common. Koinonia. We don't even have an English equivalent that does it justice. We don't have a word that really says what this word says in the Greek, what it really means. We can take stabs at it, and and if you look up koinonia, you'll get like five or six different uh, translations or expressions to try and get to the meaning of the word, and you still come up a little bit short. Koinonia, the best that I can come up with, is sharing all things in common. It's common, as koinos, But it's sharing all things in common. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. And I want you to think about this as we conclude this morning, but this is really big. In verse 4, why does John say these things we write so that our joy may be complete? Is he talking about his joy and those who are helping him write the letter? We write these things, he says, so that our joy may be complete. That includes all of us in fellowship. It's a collective joy. Our joy, your joy, my joy, our joy, all together and with God, fellowship with each other and with the Father and the Son. Now listen, we can click and we can cluster and we can clan. We can group up. You can have 1,500 friends on Facebook. You can be in... A dozen social groups. 
You can meet up on house party. But outside of Jesus Christ, you will never know the joy of true koinonia. You cannot have koinonia without Jesus. Can't have it. Well, I can fellowship with my... No, you can't. Because without Jesus, we cannot know eternal, intimate commonality with God and those who are His. It only comes of being in Jesus, and we are in Jesus together. As the early church, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Acts 4.32, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one claimed, note this, not one claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Rick, can I borrow a movie tonight? No, it's mine. (laughs) And one of these days I'm going to walk up to Glenn and go, Hey Glenn, I kind of like that jacket you're wearing. Hand it over. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours, right? I mean, if we're thinking like the early church, if we're considering fellowship as to what it really means, man, it is intense commonality. Everything is is shared. Now you might say, well, that sounds kind of like an exclusive club. To which I respond, it would be, except that the invitation goes out to anybody. Doors wide open. Join up with Jesus, and what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. And by the way, what's Jesus is mine, and what's mine is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship, koinonia, with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now get this. To be in fellowship with God is to share all things in common with Him, That is, all I have is His, and all He has is mine. He invites me into that. Now, I think He got the short end of the stick. Just my opinion. But for those who think that God's call to obedience, that God's call to following Jesus is a little demanding, it's like me going up to Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos and saying, Yo, Beast, I got a sweet deal for you. And just hear me out on this. Let's pool all we have into one big account to share. Everything that's mine is yours, and everything that's yours is mine. (laughs) Seems fair? Hey, no offense intended, but Jeff Bezos is a pauper compared to God. And the Lord God, creator of all the universe, says, I want to be in koinonia with you. Which means I want you to share with me all that's yours. And I will share with you all that is mine. That's fellowship. That is what you cannot get outside of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Every spiritual blessing is yours. Now, Jake was talking about this. We were talking on Thursday evening, and, and Jake said, I, I shared that with the students, and I asked him one time, what does that mean, every spiritual blessing? And he said, they just kind of looked at me. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you're looking at me right now. Well, what is every spiritual blessing? What does that mean? Sounds good. Hey, I have every spiritual blessing. Great, will it buy me a hamburger? <laughs> what, what, is, what are those blessings? Listen, this will be a sermon series until Jesus comes. If we started to recount all the spiritual blessings. But I will give you five fullness of joy formidable foes of sin fluency in the truth firmness in the knowledge of eternal life and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ which brings us into fellowship with each other all things in common and John is just getting warmed up let's pray Father we thank you for this letter And we thank You for the offering that You have set before us to be in fellowship with You. Lord, it chokes me up. It is overwhelming that You made this offer at all. 
you who, who has everything would say to me who has so little. In fact, Lord, you say to, to, to me who only has what you've given me. You invite me into fellowship with you as a son of the house. Oh, the love of God. How amazing. How rich. And Father, that's, that's what we really come to recognize in this reality, in this truth, in this teaching. That fellowship with You comes of the love of our Father. The love that You have for us. And Father, I pray that we would simply be compelled by Your love. Controlled by Your love. Drawn by Your love. Thank You for Your teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.